Well, good morning to everyone here in person, those with us online. A joy to be back in person with you. I go on one trip. Find COVID on it. But it is, it is good to be together again. And we have the, the joy of going and turning to God's Word together. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 15. We're going to be considering Revelation 15 and 16. And I want to say, as we come toward the last stretch of this book, this incredible letter, the intensity of it is going to increase each week. Uh, starting with this week going forward, it's going to be more intense in its portrayal of what takes shape at the return of Christ. And again, Revelation is a very highly symbolic, uh, unique letter in the Bible. Ultimately, though, it is written for our encouragement to hold on to trust Christ, to know that while life is hard and evil is real, God is very much in control and Jesus wins, so hold on. That's been our interpretive key along the way, and we're going to get into some weird and and interesting things along the rest of this letter, but keep that key in mind. It's for our encouragement to keep holding on in this world. We're going to go ahead and read, we're going to consider both of these chapters, 15 and 16. They're dealing with um, the seven bulls, and, and, and again, if you've been with us along the way, we've had very symbolic um, portrayals, portrayals of God's sovereignty over history, how things unfold, His purposes for it. We had seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then seven bulls, and, and, and these seven bulls are a more intense look at the very end. And so that's what we're going to be considering today. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 15, and we're going to hit on some things along the way through these two chapters. So if you have a Bible, keep it open there, Um, otherwise the words will be on the screen. Let's read and hear God's Word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those, also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. God, as we come to this passage, we certainly pray as we consider these words uh, that, that are overwhelming, confusing, unsettling, that you would be with us, that you would help our hearts and our minds to better understand your character and your worth, your works, your ways culminating in the return of King Jesus. May that bring encouragement to us, we pray. May it draw us to you through faith in that one who returns. So be with the preaching, the hearing, the receiving, the believing, trusting your word, your glory and our good, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Mike, if you would slide, put the slide with the sermon title on there. 
The terrible, horrible, great, no good, awesome, just and true, very bad day. Playing off of that preteen adolescent book that has some of those words in there. But as we consider these two chapters, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit overwhelming. It's a little bit of awesome. In fact, the passage that we just opened with said great and awesome. And yet, as we're going to consider it, it's also terrible and horrible and overwhelming. And that's the return of the king. That's the culmination of God's purposes. It's the display that he is very much certain in his ways and his purposes. While the circumstances of life can feel like a dizzying display of uncertainties, God is very much in control and Jesus wins and God will display that control and that victory in a very leave no doubt about it way. The certainty of God and the certainty of His purposes calms our hearts and encourages our faith in uncertain days. Revelation 15 and 16 is an escalating vivid portrayal of this. And by looking at the certainty of God's judgment over his enemies, we can have calmed hearts and encouraged faith to continue holding on. To continue holding on even when our days feel very uncertain. The circumstance around our lives very much out of our control. And so with that, we're going to be considering the culmination Of God's judgment. And the culmination of judgment shows us some things that we're going to consider in our passage together. First, it shows that God's judgment is just. That's very important because it's a bit staggering and overwhelming, unsettling. It is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But it is just, it is great and awesome. And so we're going to wrestle with that and think through that. From that, we're also going to see that God's enemies are wicked. Another thing that feels very unsettling to consider. That God's enemies are wicked. And then thirdly, we will find that God's people are redeemed. That day is also a great and awesome, just and true day. It is both. And so we'll work through that together. My hope is that as we do so, as best as I can, hopefully aided by the work of the Spirit, that we will be able to see these things, but also be encouraged that that our hearts would be drawn to God through faith in Christ. And that if anybody is with us today whose heart might be hard toward God, or far from God, or wrestling over the idea of God, I'm glad that you're here. This is a hard one to be here for. But I am so glad that you are here. May God help us all better understand his character and his purposes and also his grace and his mercy in Jesus Christ. So let's consider together first that God's judgment is just. We have seven bowls, seven again being the symbolic number for completeness and wholeness. And this is the third of seven things uh, that we've been considering through Revelation. Seals, trumpets, and now bowls. And so it's this escalating picture 
of God's comprehensive judgment at the return of Christ. And there are three things that we want to think through about God's judgment being just. Three things that we're going to work through in our passage. And the first is, judgment originates with God. Judgment originates with God. Let's read the rest of chapter 15 and the verse, first verse of chapter 16, starting at verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Judgment originates with God. This is God's judgment. Then again in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 16, just to reinforce this, we find these words. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. You brought these judgments. There is... In our passage, no confusion where justice comes from. It comes from God. It's not something outside of God that God is emboldened to do. It is originating with God. It is His purpose, His decree, His will. It is God bringing it about. And so whatever else we want to say about this this terrible and yet great and awesome day, it originates and it finds its meaning in God. And God has purposed to bring about judgment on all of his enemies. In Jeremiah chapter 25, speaking of this day from a different vantage point, it says this, Trust the Lord, the God of Israel, Sorry, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. God's enemies stagger about, crazed over the overwhelming nature of his wrath, that is, his judgment. But there's no confusion here. It's God. It's not necessarily us. It's not our perspective of things. It's God, the Holy One, the overall, the first and best of beings. It's God who judges His enemies. Sin, Satan, death, those who reject Him and rebel against Him. It's God. God's in charge. Judgment originates with God. Secondly, we find is that judgment of God is holy in character. 
It originates with him, therefore it is holy. But that's brought out in our passage also. In Revelation 15, 5 and 6, that scene that we see there in the sanctuary of the tent of witness, we find that there came seven angels with the seven plagues. And what were they? They were clothed in bright, pure, bright linen, golden sashes around their chest. The temple setting and the pure, bright linen, all of those things symbolically convey holiness. You find that throughout the Old Testament. You find it in the New, and you find it here in Revelation. They all convey holiness. The holiness of God and the holiness of God's purposes and decrees. So whatever we want to say about God's wrath and judgment, we must call it holy. That it's holy, it's perfect, it's without fault or sin, it's right, it's true, it's good. That's unsettling because you and I, when we want to enact our wrath and our judgment, would you ever say it's holy? Would you ever say that it is right, just, and true? That it's not mixed with your own sin? Of course not. Of course not. We're honest. And yet, God is perfect in every way. And anything He does, He's always perfect. And anything He does, our purposes, it's always right. It's always good. It's hard for our brains to get around that. It's hard for us to understand this fully, comprehend it deeply, And yet, whatever we want to say, it is holy. God's judgment, His wrath poured out on His enemies, is holy. Now, that brings us back to something we considered briefly last week, and that is the difference between lateral and vertical grasp of judgment, of justice. When we think of it laterally, we think, well, that's not fair. But when we think of it vertically, we realize, no, grace isn't fair, God being gracious isn't fair when we consider humanity to the holiness of God. And so we must remember these things together. And in fact, you would even see in in Revelation chapter 16, verse 7, heaven's response to the judgment that originates in God and is considered holy. What does heaven say? I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So whatever we think about this terrible, awful day, it is also great and it's awesome because it originates with God and it is holy. The third thing that we find in the picture of the seven bowls is that not only is judgment originating with God and not only is it holy in character, but it is also complete. Judgment is complete. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and awesome, seven angels with seven plagues, which, is, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then toward the end of chapter 16, as, those, as the unfolding of those seven bowls being poured out occurs, verse 17, it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple From the throne saying, It is done. The two moments in the Bible that involve it is finished in God's justice. One is the cross, where the Son of God went to the cross to endure the justice that we deserved, and the other is when He returns. 
And I would implore you and encourage you that the best moment of justice being finished is the cross and not the return. Only at the cross is, is the finished work of God's justice being satisfied worth all the joy. Because there we find our Savior. Doing for us what we could never do. Enduring what we could never endure. To secure for us something we could never gain. And that is salvation. But when He returns, it will be finished in a different way. Now, considering that, just as with salvation, God leaves nothing hanging. And He leaves nothing hanging when it comes to His judgment. You know, we rejoice over the words that says, He saves to the uttermost. Hebrews. But He also judges to the uttermost. And this judgment of God, it should stop us in our tracks. It originates with Him. It's holy and it is complete. Nothing will hang in the balance with it. It should stop us in our tracks. And the judgment of God is going to bring out one of two responses. And I mean it. I don't want to oversimplify something that's complicated and hard for us to fully grasp. But our response will be one of two ways. Humble or hardened. The response is either humbleness and joy for His grace because we live in the day of the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear that, do not harden your heart. And so when we consider the bigness and the godness of God and His ways in all that He purposes to do, should humble our hearts to realize that He has offered us a way of life with Him through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. It should flood our hearts with humility and faith and joy and hope and wonder. Or it does just like what happened in the story of the Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his heart. There's a hardness of heart toward God, a hatred toward His holiness. And as we think through this passage and as we think through the scope of human history and God's purposes sovereignly being fulfilled, we realize that God is is perfect in all of His ways and that His judgment is just. And then we consider the reality is that God's enemies are wicked. That there is a severity of spiritual opposition that's on display in our passage. There are three things that we're going to find here also. And the first is when we consider the fact that God's enemies are wicked, that they respond to God's sovereignty and His purposes with hardness of heart and hate toward His holiness, we see first a refusal to repent. We see first a refusal to repent. In the first four bowls that are poured out on All of the cosmos at the end, at the sort of summary statement after the first four, it says these words in Revelation 16, 9, they did not repent and give him glory. Experiencing 
God's providence and sovereignty over everything, over history, over all things, they did not repent and give him glory. Then just the next few verses during the fifth bowl, which is even more intense, it says in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 16, people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Again, this is very similar to the story of Exodus, and in fact, you're supposed to think that as this passage began by calling these bulls the seven plagues, and you immediately think of plagues in the Exodus. And you're, you're supposed to have that story as a framework for understanding what's happening here throughout all of history with even great intensity at the return of Christ. And so similar to the story of Exodus, God displays his power and judgment over his enemies. But it's not met with repentance Rather, it's met with greater hardening of heart. Instead of seeing the folly of their ways, and instead of seeing the forgiveness of God's grace offered to them through the gospel, the unfolding of God's sovereignty over history brings about a hardness of heart and a hatred toward Him. They blame God and then revolt all the more. And that's what we see secondly. So there's first a refusal to repent. Secondly, we find an escalating rebellion. An escalating rebellion against, by those who reject and rebel against God. As I said already, the first four bowls were broadly poured out on the earth and end with a refusal to repent. The fifth bowl is like the plague of darkness in Exodus. It impacts only the enemy, and they refuse to repent. The sixth bowl, which we're about to read, deals with the enemies of God and their rage-filled, escalating rebellion. Let's look at verses 12 through 16 of Revelation 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is a great battle between the enemies of God and God. It's been referenced in Revelation a number of times from a couple of different angles, both in the seals and in the trumpets, if you find their equivalent six version, the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet, you would find a a very similar dynamic. It is the all-out rejection of and rebellion against God. It's also a fulfillment of a great battle described in the Old Testament prophecy. In Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, you'll find that battle described. Ezekiel 38, 16 says this, "'You will come up against my people Israel.'" like a cloud covering the land in the latter days, 
I will bring you against my land, that the nations may know me, when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This great battle at the end, if you will, will be a way in which God vindicates his holiness, his purpose, his sovereignty, that leaves no doubt. We do learn a few things, though, about this along the way. One is God's redeemed will also be fiercely attacked. That while there is opposition to God, there will also be opposition to God's people. And that will come in a variety of forms. The fist of persecution or the buffet of idolatry. But let's keep in mind that, let's keep in the context here, that Revelation is also a very highly symbolic letter. And it's conveying these incredible, overwhelming word pictures to to convey to us spiritual truths and realities. So this is a symbolic location for a battle. It's a region that has rich history of God's people facing God's enemies. We need not worry ourselves about a literal location and a literal battle in the sense of what we would think of when it comes to war. But this is certainly a reality, a spiritual reality that God's people face. And that's what we see thirdly. In that God's enemies are wicked, there's a culminating spiritual battle. Let's look at the last bowl, verses 17 through 21 in Revelation 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. This great battle that we see in the previous bowl under Armageddon <clears throat> excuse me, is symbolic for the spiritual conflict of this age, and that spiritual conflict will increase in intensity as history unfolds. There is great spiritual conflict that God's people face because God has enemies. That spiritual conflict involves three sort of three-pronged approach. One is idolatry. But the world in which we live in offers to us a buffet of idolatry that we would go to the buffet and ask something not God to be God and to do what only God can do. To do that for us. Maybe it's the acceptance within the world. Maybe it's the uh, accomplishments that we can gain, the applause that we can garner, the pleasures and the possessions, whatever it might be, the sense of comfort, I, whatever that is, it's a buffet and it's, it's a temptation for us to ask something not God to be God to us. And with that idolatry comes a whole different system of values 
The world and the devil hold out an alternative value system that overtly and sub- subtly subverts God from our conscience. And this is increasing in intensity as we go through Revelation, as we go through history. It's not getting easier. It's actually getting more difficult to hold on because the buffet is so alluring and the values that come with it can grip our hearts so deeply. So there's idolatry and there are values and then from that comes manner of living. From the idolatry and subsequent value system comes a whole self-absorbed manner of living. There are some in this room who are old enough to remember growing up in a culture in which it was socially acceptable to go to church, socially acceptable to say that you were a Christian. And that social acceptability is no longer the case. Those of you who are younger, in your 20s and teens, you do not grow up in that world, nor will you grow up in that world. And in fact, it will come with great social cost to hold on to Christ and to make much of Him. This culminates as history unfolds. This culminates in an all-out affront against God, His kingdom, and His people. And it's overwhelming. And yet, it loses. It loses. Because God is in control. And Jesus wins. No buffet of idolatry can overcome the king. No value system of the world can outshine the kingdom. No manner of living can rip us away from the grip of God's grace. So friends, hold on. Hold on. Because there's encouragement here in this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That it is great and it is awesome. It is just and it is true. And thirdly, we find that God's people are redeemed. Fully realizing that redemption. In a wearying world. In a reality with dizzying displays of uncertainties. In which you will feel marginalized. And kick to the curb uh, in your culture. In which you may experience other forms of hostilities in your homes or in your families, in your friendships, because you are holding on to King Jesus, you may experience all kinds of difficulties, and those difficulties may increase in intensity over the course of your life. And I say, I know that's going to be incredibly hard, but hold on, because what's at the very end is victory. There is joy, there is hope, there is glory, there's Jesus. God's people are redeemed. Three things from our passage. First, God's people conquer death. Conquer death. Death does not win. Death does not get the last word, the final say. 
Look at verse 2 of, of Revelation 15. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those, also those who had conquered the beast and its image. These are the redeemed. The number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. There they are standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. In the Bible, sea is often used to represent one of two things, chaos or death. Both were overwhelming for the people of God. You had no control over either one of them. The chaos of the sea or its symbolism of death. And so it was often used in a way to make you feel very unsettled. Which is interesting when you think of like the story of Jonah. He'd rather go to the chaos of sea than following what God called him to do. It really drives home how rebellious he was that he would choose that over following God. But the sea is often... Uh, associated with chaos of death, and it it represented to people what they could not overcome on their own. So get that. Let that picture settle in. What's happening in this scene? They're standing on the other side of the sea, harps in hand, singing songs of victory. Death did not win. The chaos of the sea did not submerge them away from the presence of God. Christ conquered it all. So be encouraged. When the world around you feels like chaos, when death seems about you, you who are in Christ, you win. You win. Secondly, we find that they are busy worshiping God. Verses 3 and 4 Again, is a song of 3 and 4 of chapter 15. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Whether it's salvation or judgment, God is worthy of praise His character and faithfulness is on display in our salvation. And his character and faithfulness is on display in the judgment of his enemies. In the conquering of death, Satan, the grave, and of all evil. He is worthy of all praise. And then God's people who are redeemed. At the sing of that. Worship him for all eternity. And then thirdly we find. God's people are redeemed in this culminating picture, the very end. Therefore, we can go about keeping our hold on Christ, that we keep holding on. All of this, the justice of God over the wickedness of his enemies, is to bring the needful encouragement for the people of God to keep holding on. When we read through the sixth plague, there was a very interesting parenthetical statement in that passage. Let's go back to that. It's Jesus speaking. Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The idea of staying awake and keeping dressed are calls to endure, to keep holding on to Christ, that Christ is coming, he will return. You won't know when he is, but he's on his way. And he's going to plunder this world for all of his redeemed. 
And so hold on, be ready, stay centered on Jesus, the victor for you. The one who has rescued you from sin and grave and Satan. Hold on to him. It's easy to feel overwhelmed. The world is wild. Evil lurks in every corridor. Everything seems so much bigger than we are. Then there's the whole series of being ridiculed and mocked and marginalized that come with those who cling to Christ. Yet, who we are in Christ are ones abled by Christ to endure such escalating opposition. And it's in these very moments in which we feel this way that we are to look to the one who triumphed victoriously. God's people are redeemed. Whether your days feel like chaos, chased by death, you who trust Jesus through faith, faith in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, will stand on the other side of it all singing songs of victory. For God is certain and certain to leave no doubt when Christ returns. So let us encourage each other to hold on. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do that in us, that our hearts would feel that encouragement that many of us may in here feel that life is chaos, that uncertainties abound, that death is real and, and very near, that things can feel overwhelming, or maybe we feel very dissatisfied with this life, very uh, frustrated by its challenges. We have many reasons all around us to call out for us to bail on holding on you. And God, I would just pray that even as we consider the very end and the culminating purpose of your judgment, that it would bring to us a calming of our hearts and a encouraging of our faith so that we too hold on to the very end. We ask this for your glory and we ask it for our good. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand as we proclaim the promise of our Savior Jesus, the one who has made a way for us. We are saved by grace through faith. Hang on. Keep faith in Jesus, our risen Savior, who is coming soon.